0: Today's scripture reading is taken from Luke chapter 3, verse 2 to 20. Luke chapter 3, verse 2 to 20. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who want you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also, came, also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by, or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptise you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his bun but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. This is the word of God.
1: Thanks, Stanley, for reading God's Word to us. Uh, if you are wondering why this is the Word of God and how do we know this is the Word of God, I do encourage you, as uh, uh, Song Hwa announced earlier, to join us for the Equip class this Saturday from 3.30pm to 5.30pm, just to hear about why this is the Word of God and why we should trust it. So let me commend that class to you. Uh, let's pray together as we prepare our hearts to hear from God's Word. Let's all pray. Dear Father, we thank you for how you have spoken, and Father, we thank you that your word is true and we can trust it. And Father, as we come to your word this new year, Father, we pray that you would speak to us. We ask that you would remove any uh, obstacles in our hearts that keep us from hearing you and from doing your word. Uh, Father, we pray that your spirit would uh, move among us, that your spirit would open our hearts to you, to know you, to delight in you so that this year we would live for you so father help us lord we pray that you would strengthen us by your grace we ask this in jesus name amen uh, so we finally arrived in the year 2020 <laughs> you know happy new, happy new year you know the year 2020 has captured the imagination of thinkers for many years i think some countries have a vision 2020 <laughs> uh, over the past century you know Futurists, engineers, scientists have made all kinds of bold predictions for what will happen this year. You know, according to Wired magazine in 1997, yeah, those of you who were old enough to remember 1997, uh, this is the year when humans will travel to Mars. You know, in 1966, uh, science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke, who's also a scientist, philosopher, said that we would be living in flying houses in 2020. And according to a Time Magazine article in the same year, in 1966, uh, this article wrote that machines we will be producing so much by 2020 that we'll all be rich and no one will have to work anymore. Good news for us in 2020. <laughs> hey, but, but before you quit your job, before you buy a flying house or book your ticket to Mars, I mean, you may want to wait and see how things pan out over the next 12 months. <laughs> uh, but seriously... What are we preparing for this year? You know, 2020. You know, some of us may have made resolutions and plans, and some of us may have uh, made plans to change, right? To to do more of something, and maybe to do less of something else or some, some other things. To, maybe to stop doing certain things. You know, yesterday Claire, Claire and I do what we normally do for the new year. We spend the day just thinking about the past year, you know, reflecting on what was past, and then we. Plan ahead for this coming year. You know, we, we set goals and we make plans, hopefully, to accomplish those goals. And maybe some of you have done the same thing as well, as you reflect on this coming year, you know, what, what, what you plan to do. You know, last week, uh, Pastor Ian challenged us to think about what we are waiting for. So today, our text in Luke's Gospel challenges, challenges us to think about how we are preparing for what is to come. So very good text for a new year. How are we preparing for what is to come? And as we heard last week, when we think about waiting, uh, waiting in Scripture is not passive, but waiting is active. So last week's text kind of ties in very well with this week's sermon as well. As we wait, we're not passively waiting, but we're actively preparing for what's to come. You know, the challenge of preparing for what's to come, preparing for the future, is that we can't always be sure that our plans and expectations will actually come to pass. You know, like these predictions that have been made of the year 2020, predicting the future is a tricky business. You know, but what if there is a future that we can be absolutely sure of? Shouldn't we be preparing? For that, If there's something you know that absolutely will happen, you know, wouldn't you want to prepare for that? We began our sermon series on Luke's Gospel in the round to Christmas, and so far we've heard about Jesus' birth and his childhood. And here in our passage that was read for us by Stanley, we fast forward about 20 years to the time just before Jesus begins his public ministry, And this is the year A.D. 29, and our passage tells us that it is the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Pontius Pilate is the governor of Judea. Herod Antipas, who is the son of Herod the Great, ruled Galilee, and his brother Philip ruled Ituria and Trachonitis. Lysanias ruled Abilene. And during this time, we're also told Caiaphas was the high priest. Although his father-in-law, Annas, the former high priest, was still a powerful influence. So so that's the historical setting, AD 29. And into this complex historical, political, religious landscape comes this man. His name is John, and Luke tells us he's the son of Zechariah. So he's the same son promised to Zechariah the priest and Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1. Now in Luke chapter 1, verse 15 to 17, it says, This son will be great before the Lord and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before them or go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready for the people, or to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John comes to prepare the way of the Lord. John comes to prepare us for what's to come. Or more specifically, he comes to prepare us for who is to come. And John's ministry fulfills the words spoken by Isaiah the prophet. If you look down in our passage, in verse 3, oh sorry, in verse 4, it says, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And it's helpful to go back to the passage in Isaiah chapter 40. That's where this quotation is taken from. And when, when you look at Isaiah 40, you, you kind of reach a turning point in the prophecy of Isaiah. You know, be, before that, just before that, Isaiah talks about the exile. Uh, the judgment of God, the, the sending of God's people into exile to Babylon. And in Isaiah 40, is a change in tone where Isaiah begins to focus on the comfort for God's people, the, the restoration of God's people after exile, the, the forgiveness of sins, the, the redemption of God's people. And, and that's where Isaiah 40 is. So it's very significant that, that Luke quotes Isaiah 40 and says, John the Baptist comes in fulfillment of Isaiah 40. Luke is trying to tell us that the the coming of John signals the beginning of God's redemption, the the bringing back of God's people from exile, the forgiveness of their sins. The coming of John the Baptist signals the beginning of what God will do to comfort His people and to save them. And, and how will God do that? Isaiah 40 tells us that God himself will come. God himself is coming to save his people in a new exodus that is even greater than the exodus from Egypt. You know, when, when Luke wrote this gospel, you know, none of the rulers mentioned in verse 1 were still in power. You know, the things of this world, they, they come and go. I think maybe we've experienced that in 2019, and I'm sure we'll experience that again in 2020. The things of this world come and go, but Jesus is coming Lord. He's still the Lord. And He's the same yesterday, today and forever. You know, friends, we, we spend so much time and energy preparing for worldly success and happiness. And, and these things will ultimately fade away. But as we prepare to begin this new year, I, I think we need to ask this question. Are we prepared for King Jesus? Are, are we prepared for King Jesus? You know, As, as we read this text, we, we know that he's already come once. And because he's already come once, we know with certainty that he will come back one day. And just as the people in John's time look forward to the coming of Jesus, so we also look forward to the coming of Jesus as well. To the time of ultimate comfort and salvation that God will bring when Jesus returns. Now each passing year brings us closer to his return. So how should we be prepared for Jesus and be ready for his coming? So three points from our text this morning as we think about how we can be prepared for Jesus. Number one, we must repent. We must repent. Now Isaiah's prophecy that Luke quotes in verses 4 to 6 of our text describes the building of a road a building of the road for the Lord to prepare His way. You know, the, the language describes the, the removal of obstacles and obstructions. You know, valleys are filled, mountains and hills are flattened in order to make a smooth and level road for the Lord. You know, it's really road building, right? How do you cut a road through valleys and mountains? You, you kind of either build tunnels or you flatten the valleys or you, you kind of smooth out the valleys. You know, the crooked is made straight, to make the road kind of straight. Now, what does it mean to build a road? You know, why, why is Isaiah talking about road building? To prepare the way of the Lord. What does it mean to build a road? Luke tells us in verse 3 in our text, you know, after a period of silence of more than 400 years, God again speaks through his prophet, and his prophet is John. And John comes with a very simple message. You know, John comes in fulfillment of Isaiah 40, you know, this is how the road for the Lord will be built. So how will it be built? John says, repent. Right, repent. His message is a, base, is a simple one. He says, repent. You know, he preaches a, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So to prepare the way of the Lord, John says, this is what we must do. We must turn back to Him. Turn back to Him. Repent. God is perfectly holy and righteous, and our sin has separated us from Him. So our sin is the obstacle that must be removed in order for us to prepare the way of the Lord. Isaiah 40 tells us that unless we repent, we we cannot see the salvation of God. In order to receive the Lord, we must turn to Him and turn away from ourselves. That's why repentance is so crucial. I know repentance has fallen on hard times. Some some people deny the need for repentance. Some people think that speaking of repentance is legalistic. But friends, it's not true. The Lord calls us to turn back to Him, to prepare the way for Him. Now the Jews had different religious rituals for washing. You know, but what really matters to God is not ceremonial cleanness, but true repentance. You know, that, that's why John is called John the Baptist. You know, so us Baptists should be really happy. <laughs> He's called John the Baptist because his his baptism wasn't just a religious ritual. You know, John practiced an immersion in water that was not just a ceremonial rite, it was not just a ritual cleansing that people would undergo, but, but this immersion is in water was a sign of genuine repentance and the washing away of the guilt of sin. So that, that's the kind of baptism that John practiced. If you want to be baptized, John would say, then you need to repent. Don't just get wet. You know, getting wet doesn't count for anything before God. You, know, you, you can get wet in this pool behind me, but unless there's repentance, getting wet doesn't mean anything in the sight of God. And and John, you know, in this text, John had very strong words for the crowds that came to him. You know, he is seeker unfriendly, right, in this sense. You know, what does he call them? He calls them son of, you know, brood of vipers. Imagine, you know, the, the service leader coming on Sunday morning and saying, welcome brood of vipers. Thank you for gathering today. You no, know, he calls them children of snakes. You know, that, that's, that's the more blunt translation, right? He calls them children of snakes. You know, and, and if, you read, if you look at the parallel passage in Matthew's Gospel, uh, Matthew's Gospel tells us that the crowd included Jewish religious leaders. You know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were also coming. You know, maybe they were curious. You know, they came to John and were saying, hey, what's this guy all about? You know, why is he talking so much about repentance and baptism? Let's, let's go listen. So John sees these crowds coming to him, including Pharisees and Sadducees, religious leaders, and he calls them "children of snakes." And it's a bit of a surprise, right? Because we think that the, the, the supposed religious insiders, you know, the, the religious, religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the people who knew the law, the people who seem to be the most religious, they are the ones that John says you need to repent. Surprise, surprise. Right? It's like John speaking at a pastor's convention saying, you brood of vipers, you better repent. It's not what we expect because we, we expect repentance to be for those who are clearly immoral, for those who are clearly irreligious. But John says it's, it's, it's actually the, the, the religious leaders who need repentance. Friends, re- repentance is not just for outsiders, right? Repentance is for so-called insiders. To put it in language for today, repentance is for churchgoers, especially regular churchgoers. Repentance is not just for those we think are explicitly immoral or irreligious. Repentance is also for those who appear moral, for those who appear religious, especially for those who are in full-time ministry. So John says to us, this is his message to us, we must repent either of our unrighteousness or we must repent of our self-righteousness. You know, that, that's, what baptism, that's what makes baptism meaningful. It's not just a ritual cleansing, but it's a, it's a sign of true repentance, a true turning of ourselves back to God. Friends, as we start 2020, you know, it's a good time to re- evaluate our spiritual health. So as, as we listen to the words of John the Baptist, repent. Because the Lord is coming. Repent. Friends, let's take a moment, you know, slow down and take a moment to ask ourselves, you know, how are we doing spiritually? Really? How are we doing spiritually? It doesn't matter if you're a regular churchgoer. It doesn't matter if this is your first Sunday ever in the church. This question is for all of us. How are we doing? Spiritually, don't presume that we are spiritually okay just because we go to church, just because we're seemingly religious. Don't presume that we're okay because we have Christian family members. And notice what John says. Now, John challenges our comfortable complacency with a wake up call. Now, he says to these crowds, These are Jewish people. It says to the crowds who are coming to him, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. You know, it's the thing. Don't don't think that you're okay because you have Christian parents. Don't don't think that you're okay because you have Christian family members, because your children are Christian. Right, right? Don't don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. You know, John, John kind of, issues this very bracing wake-up call to all of us. You know, He tells us we, we cannot hide behind external religion and we cannot hide behind family heritage because God looks at our hearts and every one of us must give an account to Him and every one of us must ask ourselves, am I truly repentant before God? And, and John speaks about the urgency of repentance in verse 9. Uh, We we need urgently to repent because God's judgment is coming. You know, verse 9, even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You know, friends, this is a life and death question, right? You know, this is a bracing text for the new year, I know, know, but, but these are Urgent life and death matters. You know, repentance is not trivial. And indeed, Jesus says the same thing in later part of Luke's Gospel. You know, Luke chapter 13, Jesus says, you know, "...unless you repent, you will all likewise perish." That's Luke 13 verse 3. So we need to repent, we must repent, so, but, but what does repentance mean? What does it mean to repent? Now, this is our next point that, that John kind of picks up on in our text as well. You know, we, we may have heard repentance being defined as a change of mind, right? And this is true. Repentance is, does involve a change of mind, but we can wrongly assume that repentance is just an intellectual exercise of changing what we believe or changing what we think. But but John here in, in this part of Luke's gospel tells us that true repentance goes beyond that. It's not just a change of mind. John says in verse 8, you know, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. You know, once I was walking in Marichi Reservoir, and I was walking along this forest path, and then I, I came across like this really small durian. <laughs> on the forest path. You know, when, when you see a durian on the forest path, what's your first instinct? You, know, you can't look for a durian tree, right? So you start, I started looking up, saying, okay, where, where did this durian come from, right? So why, why do you look for a durian tree? Because you, you know that when you see the, the, a durian fruit, you expect a durian tree, right? I mean, that, that's common sense. You know, we, 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 how do we tell if a tree is a durian tree? You look for durians hanging on its branches, right? A, a tree is known by its fruits. You know a durian tree when you see durians. So that's what John says, right? How, how, the, how can we tell if we are truly repentant? You look for durians. <laughs> you look for fruit, right? So, so John's going to tell us you know, what, what kind of fruit should we be looking for in our lives, what kind of fruit should we expect? You know, John says genuine repentance begins inwardly in our hearts, but it will flow outwards. You know, Repentance doesn't remain just in our minds or internally, but repentance flows outwards from our hearts and begins to impact our lives. It begins to change how we live. Repentance involves changing what, who we are on the inside, which then transforms our attitudes, our affections, you know, what we love, what we desire. And ultimately, it will transform our actions as well, from the heart to the hands, from the heart to the attitudes, affections, and actions. So God's people are to be a repenting people, so friends, I mean, one, one of the measures of church health is, is whether the church is a repenting church. right? This is how you can tell if a church is healthy, right? not, not just because, not, not by looking at its programs, not by looking at its attendance, not by looking at its size or membership or even its budget, but, but you tell a church, you can tell if a church is healthy if it is a repenting church. Why? Because God expects His people to be a holy people, a people who continually turn back to Him. So how how are we as Grace Baptist Church marked by a culture of genuine repentance? We want to be a community that turns away from religious hypocrisy, from trusting in just religious ritual. We want to be a community that shuns Superficiality. It's easy to be superficial, right? It's nice to you know, I I do this as well, right? People ask me, How are you? Oh fine. How's your Christian life? Oh fine, everything's going really well. You know, friends, it's easy to hide behind a veneer of superficiality when we think about our faith. But but I think this text in Luke's gospel kind of challenges us to be honest and transparent about our sin. Why? Because we are to be a repenting people. And we can't be a repenting people if we hide behind a veneer of superficiality with regards to our sin. So are we becoming more transparent and honest as a community about our failings? Can we talk about our failings? Are we increasingly grieved by our sinfulness? Is there genuine sorrow for sin and a genuine desire for true holiness? Now, do we reflect in our lives together as well as individually in the world? Do we reflect a lifestyle of repentance? Because this is the normal Christian life. Now, God wants His people to bear good fruit. So, what does this look like? You know, surprisingly, John doesn't mention any religious activities. You know, when, when the crowd asks John, hey, what, what, what should we do? You know, you've talked about repentance, great, so, so we want to repent. What does that look like? What should we do? You know, maybe we expect John to say, oh, you must go to the temple and offer sacrifices. You know, but notice John doesn't say that at all. He doesn't talk about religious activities. You know, John doesn't say, oh, you must start going to church. John doesn't say that. What does John say about the fruit? Of repentance. Look down in verses 11 to 14. He gives examples of what the fruit looks like. And he says repentance means loving people, repentance means opening our hearts to those in need by being generous and showing compassion. You know, literally giving someone the shirt off your back. That's repentance. Giving someone who is in need food. John says that's what repentance looks like. You know, instead of hoarding wealth, John says we are to use what we have to serve others. That is repentance. Tax collectors are to stop being dishonest and to collect only what they are authorized to do. Soldiers are to stop abusing their power and authority for their own selfish gain. Instead, they are to be content with their salary. Maybe that's a big ask for us in 2020. Be content with our salary (laughs) and uphold justice. It's it's, it's interesting, right? John says, You want to know what repentance looks like? This is what repentance looks like. You know, what what do these examples that John cites tell us about repentance? He says, True repentance is specific. Specific. You know, repentance in our lives is this big U turn that we do, right? You know, we, we change our destination. You know, Once we were heading away from God, but, but now repentance means we, we change our destination. There's this big U-turn in our lives away from sin and ourselves and towards God. So there's a new destination. So there's a big U-turn. But there are also these smaller U-turns that we make in our lives as well. You know, as, as we head in this new direction towards God, there are also these smaller U-turns that we have to keep making because we, we, we constantly stumble into sin as well. And there are these specific turning away that we need to do again and again. And John highlights these specific U-turns. He says we we turn away from things like selfishness. We turn away from things like dishonesty, from greed, which by the way is really acceptable in our culture. It's called upgrading. We, We turn away from things like Injustice, true repentance is specific. It's not just a general big U-turn. It's also these specific U-turns in our lives. True repentance is also practical. I think that's why John doesn't focus on religious activity as a sign of repentance, but he focuses on practical fruit that we see in our everyday lives. True repentance involves a change in our behavior and actions. You know, it impacts our everyday life, including how we use our money and possessions. True repentance affects how we do our work. You realize that? this is actually a really good text to think about work. Right? How do we do our work? You know, I think I the think interesting thing about what John says, you know, when tax collectors and soldiers come to him and say, what should we do? Notice John doesn't tell them to leave their jobs. I think that's quite surprising. Right? You, you think the obvious thing for a tax, a tax collector and a soldier is, why don't you quit your job? Go do something else. But John doesn't say that. It's just quite surprising right? because in that culture, tax collectors and, and soldiers had a really bad reputation for being dishonest and unjust. That was the prevailing culture in that day. You, know, you, you wouldn't trust a tax collector. In fact, it was so bad that tax collectors weren't allowed to give testimony in court because no one trusted them. But what John tells these tax collectors, you know, keep your job. Don't have to leave your job. Don't have to change what you do for work. But change how you do your work. That's what's more important to God, right? It's not just what you do for work, but how you do your work. You know, I realize that it's a new year for, for us and some of us may be thinking of changing jobs this year, you know, especially after bonus time. <laughs> you know, but, but John kind of gives us this counsel from these verses. Right? He says, don't just think about which job you want to do, but even more importantly, think about how you are doing your job. Whatever job God is leading you to, how are you doing your job? You know, if if tax collectors and sinners can uh, if tax collectors and soldiers can do work for the glory of God, I'm sure we can too. So as as we as we think about our jobs this coming year, you know, ask, 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 ask this of ourselves. Does, does the way we work does how we work in whatever job God has given you to do. That's how you work, how you treat your co-workers, how you treat your customers, how you treat your clients, how you treat your superiors, how you treat your colleagues. Does does the way you work reflect a repentant heart? Does, Does the way you work reflect a heart that trusts God? That rests in him. Now, friends, true repentance is not seen in religious activity. True repentance is seen in everyday life. It's very practical. So true repentance is not seen in how you are at church. Actually, true repentance is seen in how, how are you from Mondays to Saturdays? At your jobs in your families, in your marriages, in your parenting, in in how you relate to your parents. I mean, true repentance is seen in all these things, not in religious activity. True repentance also changes how we treat other people. In turning away from sin, we are turning away from ourselves. And repentance means becoming God-centered instead of self-centered. And when we love God, And put him first. We will also love and serve those made in his image. We'll begin to use our money, our possessions, and our jobs as God given means to do good to others. And that's what John highlights for us in these verses. You know, I think a good example of this is this man named uh, Zacchaeus. You know, I think we all know the story of Zacchaeus, or many of us do, in, in Luke chapter 19. You know, Zacchaeus. He wasn't just a tax collector, he was the chief tax collector, right? You're almost like the leader of the robbers. <laughs> no, he's the, he was the chief tax collector who had made immense riches for himself dishonestly by skimming, right, by, by, by charging more taxes than he should. But then he sees Jesus from a tree, right? He climbs a tree, sees Jesus, and then he wants to repent. He wants to come to Jesus to prepare himself for the Lord, you know, he comes to Jesus and he expresses this heart of repentance to Jesus. He says to Jesus, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. You know, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold, which is more than what the law required. And you notice in, in Zacchaeus' words, you see how his repentance was specific, it was practical, and it changed how he treated other people. And then Jesus says this in response to Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector. Today, salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus is not a son of Abraham because he's a religious Jew, but Zacchaeus is a son of Abraham because he repented of his sins. So repentance is needed. Repentance affects our lives. And finally, we must repent by turning to Jesus. The the people here in in our passage, they wonder if John is the Christ, the Messiah whom God promised would come and save his people. But but John is very clear. He says, I'm not the Christ. I am just a forerunner. I'm the trailer. The movie is coming after me. John says I am inferior to the Christ who is coming. You know, un- untying the master's sandals is something only the lowliest of servants would do. But John says he's not worthy to even untie the sandals of the coming Christ. John is saying, you know, I, I must decrease, he must increase. You know, John empties himself of pride and he humbles himself before Christ. Jesus is the Christ who is worthy of our complete worship. And then here in our text, we repent by turning to Jesus, by trusting in Him to save us from our sin. You know, our, our theme for the year, you, know, you might notice on our slides, our theme for the year is radical dependence. What does that mean? What does radical dependence mean? I think simply it means that this year, We, as a church, we want to focus on how are we placing our trust entirely on God? How are we trusting entirely on God's Son, Jesus Christ, in our lives, every part of our lives, in our work, in our families, in our relationships? How are we placing our trust in Christ alone? Instead of trusting in what we can do in our own strength and wisdom, we are to be radically dependent on Christ as we look to Him and rely on Him alone. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived, a life of perfect obedience to God. And later on in Luke's Gospel, we we see that Jesus died the death that we should have died in order to bear the judgment for sin and bring us back to God. Forgiveness comes through Christ alone and friends, trying to repent without Jesus is like trying to save ourselves through better morality or religion. You know, only Jesus has the power to save. Only Jesus. You know, John's water baptism was a sign of repentance. But the baptism that Jesus will give to his people is what makes repentance possible. Right? It's not a sign but it's the substance of true life and repentance. Jesus enables us to truly repent by baptizing with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's what John says. You know, don't, don't look at me. Don't trust in my baptism, but look at this coming one. Look, look at the Messiah who will baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. He's the one who is truly able to save. That's what John says. So friends, as we we think about repentance, repentance doesn't mean we clean ourselves up in order to come to Jesus. No, that's not repentance. Repentance means we we turn to Jesus because only He can make us clean. So so don't wait until you clean yourself up before you come to Christ, but rather come to Christ with your sins and your failings and, and find true rest in Him. That's what repentance is. You know, how, how does Jesus make us clean? He baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. You know, we, we are dead in our sin, but the Spirit gives us life. God breathes life into dry bones and makes us alive by giving us His Spirit. And through the Spirit's work, God gives us new hearts to love Him, to trust Him, and obey Him. And the Spirit cleanses us of sin from the inside out. Now God promised in the Old Testament to do this for His people. And He says through Ezekiel the prophet, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's what it means to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Fire refines and purifies anything that can hold up under its heat. We are purified when Jesus bears the heat of God's judgment for us. But fire also burns and destroys. And if we reject Jesus, then we will have to face the full force of God's judgment ourselves. So, where do we stand with regards to Jesus? We read earlier in Luke chapter 2 that Jesus is appointed for the fall and rising of many. Jesus will divide humanity in two. On one side, those who know Him and follow Him, and on the other side, those who don't, those who refuse to come under His rule, His Lordship. That's what John says here in in verse 17. The wheat will be separated from the chaff. Jesus will come and His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." So we're either purified by the refining fires of Jesus, or we will face the the destructive fires of his judgment. Are we prepared for King Jesus? Are we prepared for King Jesus. John preached the good news, but not everyone listened. Notice at the end of our text, some like Herod chose their own sin rather than Jesus. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light. But friends, the good news is that the light of life still shines in the darkness of our sin. So wherever you are, Whatever you struggle with, the light of life still shines for you. And as we begin this new year, there may be many things that we want to change. But friends, are we prepared to come to Jesus and experience His power to change? Will we repent and turn to Him this year, this day in fact? Let's pray together. Gracious Father, as we come to you, Lord, we are confronted by these words from your word. And Father, we pray that the convicting work of your spirit would take effect in our hearts. Father, only you are able to raise the dead. Only you are able to give life to those who are spiritually dead. And Father, we come as a needy people. We pray that you would work powerfully in our hearts by your spirit. Father, you call us to repent and and the good news, in fact, is that you enable us to repent through your Son, Jesus Christ, and through your Spirit. And Father, we pray that we would come and rest in you, that we would come and trust in you and find grace to help in our time of need. So Father, in this quiet, Father, we pray that you would help us to meditate and to reflect on these words that we've just heard. and As we come to take the Lord's Supper together. Father, we pray that you would continue this work of grace in our hearts. We pray that you reveal Christ to us. Help us to see the beauty of Jesus as we remember his death. Help us to see how he is the only saviour for sinners, that we would eat together and rejoice in your saving power. So Father, we commit these things to you. We pray for your help. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite the service forward who will wait on us as we partake communion together.